0: this is section sixty one of mark twain a biography volume two this librivox recording is in the public domain mark twain a biography by albert bigelow Payne. chapter one hundred and sixty five letters visits and visitors there were many pleasanter things to be sure the farm life never failed with each returning summer the winters brought gay company and fair occasions Sir Henry and Lady Stanley, visiting America, were entertained in the Clemens home, and Clemens went on to Boston to introduce Stanley to his lecture audience. Charles Dickens' son, with his wife and daughter, followed a little later. An incident of their visit seems rather amusing now. There is a custom in England which requires the host to give the guest notice of bedtime by handing him a lighted candle. Mrs. Clemens knew of this custom, but did not have the courage to follow it in her own home, and the guests knew of no other way to relieve the situation. As a result, all sat up much later than usual. Eventually Clemens himself suggested that possibly the guests would like to retire. Robert Louis Stevenson came down from Saranac, and Clemens went in to visit him at his New York hotel, the St. Stephen's on east eleventh street stevenson had orders to sit in the sunshine as much as possible and during the few days of their association he and clemens would walk down to washington square and sit on one of the benches and talk they discussed many things philosophies people books it seems a pity their talk could not have been preserved stevenson was a great admirer of mark twain's work he said that during a recent painting of his portrait he had insisted on reading huck finn aloud to the artist a frenchman who had at first protested and finally had fallen a complete victim to huck's yarn in one of stevenson's letters to clemens he wrote my father an old man has been prevailed upon to read roughing it his usual amusement being found in theology and after one evening spent with the book he declared i am frightened it cannot be safe for a man at my time of life to laugh so much what heaps of letters by the way remain from this time and how curious some of them are many of them are requests of one sort or another chiefly for money one woman asking for a single day's income conservatively estimated at five thousand dollars Clemens seldom answered an unwarranted letter, but at one time he began a series of unmailed answers, that is to say, answers in which he had let himself go merely to relieve his feelings and to restore his spiritual balance. He prepared an introduction for this series. In it he said, You receive a letter. You read it. It will be tolerably sure to produce one of three results one pleasure two displeasure three indifference i do not need to say anything about numbers one and three everybody knows what to do with those breeds of letters it is breed number two that i am after it is the one that is loaded up with trouble. When you get an exasperating letter, what happens? If you are young, you answer it promptly, instantly, and mail the thing you have written. At forty, what do you do? By that time you have found out that a letter written in a passion is a mistake in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, that it usually wrongs two persons and always wrongs one yourself you have grown weary of wronging yourself and repenting so you manacle you fetter you log chain the frantic impulse to write a pulverizing answer you will wait a day or die but in the meantime what do you do why if it is about dinner time you sit at table in a deep abstraction all through the meal you try to throw it off and help do the talking you get a start three or four times but conversation dies on your lips every time your mind isn't on it your heart isn't in it. You give up and subside into a bottomless deep of silence permanently. People must speak to you two or three times to get your attention, and then say it over again to make you understand. This kind of thing goes on all the rest of the evening. Nobody can interest you in anything you are useless a depressing influence a burden you go to bed at last but at three in the morning you are as wide awake as you were in the beginning thus we see what you have been doing for nine hours on the outside but what were you doing on the inside you were writing letters in your mind and enjoying it. That is quite true. That is not to be denied. You have been flaying your correspondent alive with your incorporeal pen. You have been braining him, disemboweling him, carving him into little bits, and then doing it all over again for nine hours. It was wasted time, for you had no intention of putting any of this insanity on paper and mailing it. Yes, you know that, and confess it, but what were you to do? Where was your remedy? Will anybody contend that a man can say to such masterful anger as that, Go, and be obeyed? no he cannot that is certainly true well then what is he to do i will explain by the suggestion contained in my opening paragraph during the nine hours he has written as many as forty-seven furious letters in his mind if he had put just one of them on paper it would have brought him relief, saved him eight hours of trouble, and given him an hour's red-hot pleasure besides. He is not to mail this letter, he understands that, and so he can turn on the whole volume of his wrath. There is no harm. He is only writing it to get the bile out. So to speak, he is a volcano imagining himself erupting does no good he must open up his crater and pour out in reality his intolerable charge of lava if he would get relief before he has filled his first sheet sometimes the relief is there he degenerates into good nature from that point sometimes the load is so hot and so great that one writes as many as three letters before he gets down to a mailable one, a very angry one, a less angry one, and an argumentative one with hot embers in it here and there. He pigeonholes these and then does one of two things, dismisses the whole matter from his mind, or writes the proper sort of letter. And mails it. To this day, I lose my balance and send an overwarm letter, or more frequently, telegram, two or three times a year. But that is better than doing it a hundred times a year, as I used to do years ago. Perhaps I write about as many as ever, but I pigeonhole them. They ought not to be thrown away. Such a letter, a year or so old, is as good as a sermon to the maw who wrote it. It makes him feel small and shabby, but, well, that wears off. Any sermon does, but the sermon does some little good, anyway. An old, cold letter like that makes you wonder how you could ever have got into such a rage about nothing the unmailed answers that were to accompany this introduction were plentiful enough and generally of a fervent sort one specimen will suffice it was written to the chairman of a hospital committee dear sir if i were smithfield and get behind something and blush According to your report, the politicians are afraid to tax the people for the support of so humane and necessary a thing as a hospital. And do your people propose to stand that at the hands of vermin officials whom the breath of their votes could blow out of official existence in a moment if they had the pluck to band themselves together and blow oh come these are not people they are cowed schoolboys with backbones made of boiled macaroni if you are not misreporting those people you are just in the right business passing the mendicant hat for them dear sir communities where anything like citizenship exists are accustomed to hide their shames but here we have one proposing to get up a great exposition of its dishonor and advertise it all it can it has been eleven years since i wrote anything for one of those graveyards called a fair paper and so i have doubtless lost the knack of it somewhat still i have done the best i could for you this was from a burning heart and well deserved one may almost regret that he did not send it once he received a letter intended for one samuel clements of elma new york announcing that the said clements pension had been allowed but this was amusing when clemens had forwarded the notice to its proper destination he could not resist sending this comment to the commissioner at washington dear sir i have not applied for a pension i have often wanted a pension often ever so often i may say but inasmuch as the only military service i performed during the war was in the Confederate Army, I have always felt a delicacy about asking you for it. However, since you have suggested the thing yourself, I feel strengthened. I haven't any very pensionable diseases myself, but I can furnish a substitute. A man who is just simply a chaos, a museum of all the different kinds of aches and pains, fractures, dislocations, and malformations there are. A man who would regard rheumatism and sore eyes as mere recreation and refreshment after the serious occupations of his day. If you grant me the pension, dear sir, please hand it to General Joseph Hawley, United States Senator. I mean, hand him the certificate, not uh, the money, and he will forward it to me. You will observe by this postal card, which I enclose, that he takes a friendly interest in the matter. He thinks I've already got the pension." whereas i've only got the rheumatism but didn't want that i had that before i wish it were catching i know a man that i would load up with it pretty early lord but we all feel that way sometimes i've seen the day when but never mind that you may be busy just hand it to Hawley. The certificate, you understand, is not transferable. Clemens was in good standing at Washington during the Cleveland administration, and many letters came asking him to use his influence with the President to obtain this or that favor. He always declined, though once, a few years later, in Europe, when he learned that Frank Mason, Consul-General at Frankfurt, was about to be displaced clemens of his own accord wrote to baby ruth cleveland about it my dear ruth i belong to the muckwumps and one of the most sacred rules of our order prevents us from asking favors of officials or recommending men to office but there is no harm in writing a friendly letter to you and telling you that an infernal outrage is about to be committed by your father in turning out of office the best consul i know and i know a great many just because he is a republican and a democrat wants his place he went on to recall mason's high and honorable record suggesting that miss ruth take the matter into her own hands then he said i can't send any message to the president but the next time you have a talk with him concerning such matters i wish you would tell him about captain mason and what i think of a government that so treats its efficient officials just what form of appeal the small agent made is not recorded but by and by mark twain received a tiny envelope postmarked washington enclosing this note in president cleveland's handwriting miss ruth cleveland begs to acknowledge the receipt of mr twain's letter and say that she took the liberty of reading it to the president who desires her to thank mr twain for her information and to say to him that captain mason will not be disturbed in the Frankfurt consulate the president also desires miss cleveland to say that if mr twain knows of any other cases of this kind he will be greatly obliged if he will write him concerning them at his earliest convenience clemens immensely admired grover cleveland also his young wife and his visits to washington were not infrequent mrs clemens was not always able to accompany him and he has told us how once it was his first visit after the president's marriage she put a little note in the pocket of his evening waistcoat which he would be sure to find when dressing warning him about his deportment being presented to mrs cleveland He handed her a card on which he had written, He didn't, and asked her to sign her name below those words. Mrs. Cleveland protested that she couldn't sign it unless she knew what it was he hadn't done. But he insisted, and she promised to sign if he would tell her immediately afterward all about it. She signed, and he handed her Mrs. Clemens' note, which was very brief. It said, Don't wear your arctics, in the white house mrs cleveland summoned a messenger and had the card she had signed mailed at once to mrs clemens at hartford he was not always so well provided against disaster once without consulting his engagements he agreed to assist mrs cleveland at a dedication only to find that he must write an apology later in his letter he said i do not know how it is in." the white house but in this house of ours whenever the minor half of the administration tries to run itself without the help of the major half it gets aground he explained his position and added i suppose the president often acts just like that goes and makes an impossible promise and you never find it out until it is next to impossible to break it up and set things straight again well that is just our way exactly one half the administration always busy getting the family into trouble and the other half busy getting it out end of chapter one hundred and sixty five letters visits and visitors read by john greenman